0: All right, welcome to the season finale of season two of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, author and entrepreneur, Emily White. Today, we're gonna be talking about when do I, as in you, when do you need an attorney, a business manager and or a manager defining an artist's traditional team? But before we get into that, I wanna thank Downtown Music Holdings for supporting this episode. Downtown's mission is to shift the power center of the music industry into the hands of those who create and those who su- and those who support that creation by giving them the finest and most comprehensive set of tools and services. Downtown is committed to building a more equitable music business. They believe in partnership advocacy and helping musicians develop sustainable careers so they don't require their clients to give up any of their copyrights. So huge thanks to Downtown. In fact, um, they really kicked my butt to do this season in the first place, whether they realize it or not. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. Okay, so we have covered the entire modern music industry from recording to release, from creation to execution, making sure you're not missing any revenue streams along the way. I'm actually not going to recap that for the first time. Hopefully we've, you know, you've got that down and you've got that covered. Um, So today we're going to talk about building uh, a traditional industry team. And that is last uh, for a few reasons because, you know, I don't hear this as much lately, but I feel like in music business programs, it kind of used to bother me when I would hear like, you know, should you go with a label or should you not go with a label? I'm like, well, do you have an offer on the table? You know, like not everybody does. So... In fact, most people don't, right? Um, So what I'm trying to say is you need all of the information we've covered over the previous seven episodes if you don't have a team. And if you want a team, you should do everything that we've covered in the previous 11 episodes because that is literally how to build a sustainable music career. It's what is going to put you out there most effectively. And it's also going to give you leverage, um, you know, with labels and managers, um, you know, that are interested in you. So if you are interested in a team following, you know, those first, first 11 episodes and first 11 chapters of the book, it's how to do that. And then if you have a team, if you're on a label, I would say it's equally, if not more important to still follow everything that we've covered because, you know, that label can get sold. Um, your key person there can change. Um, it can go out of business. You know, God forbid we heard talking talk about her manager passing away, right? So if you're just, you know, relying on other people, um, you know, that can uh, be detrimental in the future, right? Because, you know, even even when things are going great, you know, say you have a publicist and a radio team and a label is paying for it. Um, you need to be grabbing the email addresses of those journalists, of, you know, the DJs and the radio stations that are playing you. You still need to be tagging them and engaging them on social media. Because like I said, um, when any team team members uh, go away, for whatever reason, um, all you're left with is yourself. Um, and, you know, when people purchase the book this podcast is based on um, from my company's website, I can see their email domains and you know, there's managers uh, buying this book from literally the biggest management companies in the industry, which, um, you know, is, you know, humbles me for sure. But it's just a reminder that everybody's trying to figure this stuff out too, right? So it's not like, oh, I get a magical team and now everything's okay, right? You know, we heard Lachi and other artists on the podcast podcast saying that's actually, um, you know, you... I don't want to say when the work begins, but it's like it can be even even more work, and I I certainly understand that. So first, before I bring on our fabulous guest Aaron Knight, I want to break down um, the different uh, roles and you know traditional team members uh, that often surround artists, and and in the modern music industry, like some artists have some of these roles in place, others don't. You know, it's it's really a mix. But the reason this. Um, episode, title, and chapter um, starts with, you know, when do I need an attorney first? Is because I've seen a lot of artists at, you know, music conferences come up to me and be like, this is my attorney, you know? And I think, like, you're paying them to be here, you know? Like, do you actually really need an attorney? I love attorneys. My attorney, Joyce Dollinger, is, like, one of my best friends, my metaphorical older sister. I have a lot of attorneys in my life. Um, There's a lot of really good people that are attorneys, um, but generally, you are paying them cash, right? You're paying them $300, $400, $500, $700 an hour. Um, so, you know, hopefully not, but, you know, just to hang out with you at a conference, right? Um, you know, attorneys also work on commission. I would say maybe not so much in early days, but sometimes they um, will work on a 5% commission of, of all your earnings. But, um, You know, when you actually need an attorney is when you are doing a major rights deal. So that's going to be any sort of music publishing agreement, any sort of label agreement. If a manager offers you a contract, if a producer gives you a contract... That's when you need an attorney, not just to hang out with you um, at a music conference. And I think that's kind of a hangover from the pre-digital era, because, you know, like pre the year 2000, you would need an attorney to, quote, shop your music to labels so you could record and distribute. Now you can do that on your own. And, you know, we've covered that over the past few weeks. It's also really important that you get a music attorney, not a divorce attorney, not a real estate attorney, not a sweepstakes attorney, not a whatever attorney. I see way too many artists and talent try to cut corners and try to save money by working with some sort of family friend. Um, the music industry is really specific, so you need a music attorney handling, you know, your management contract, your your publishing contract, um, all of those things, and even more specifically, there's a lot of firms that'll say they do entertainment, they do copyright and IP, or whatever. Um, that doesn't even necessarily mean they're a music-specific attorney. So please make sure you're working with an attorney in in the music industry, because also like it's it it can cost you more money in the end because the music industry is so wacky and weird, you know. Um, it's just going to be way more expensive for someone that, that that's not trained in music, and frankly, it's going to make you look bad. It's going to make you look really amateur um, and like you don't know uh, what you're doing. Um, you know, I mentioned how attorneys get paid, uh, but when you work with an attorney, they're going to sign you. They're going to send you an engagement letter to sign, and they're usually going to ask for um, generally like a fifteen hundred dollar uh, retainer. Okay, um, so that's attorneys. Um, next up. Uh, are managers, which is probably the most important role on your team. I'm biased as uh, someone that ran management companies for a long time. Um, I do feel that artists often have kind of a stereotype or an idea in their mind of what their manager is going to be like and what they're going to do for them. Um, I really want to dispel that. Um, We're not miracle workers, you know, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, maybe Aaron, I mean, Aaron might be a miracle worker, but we're human beings, right? Like I I always considered myself um, to be a partner with the artists, um, you know, where we're growing uh, your career. And my business partner, Melissa Garcia has a rule um, that she always asks artists when she's considering taking them on for management. When I was a manager, I had three criteria. I mean, everybody's different. Um, But for me, it was, do I love the music? I don't want to work harder than they do. Um, So, like, if I'm chasing following up or, you know, um, they're not posting on their social media, um, that kind of thing. That's what I mean. Like, I don't want to work harder than they do. And then, of course, the famous no asshole rule. Um, But Melissa has an additional um, question she asks, which is, have you had management before? And if the answer is yes, that's really appealing to her because... Um, there's an understanding of how this works. Like I said, we're humans. um they they understand they might not be playing Madison Square Garden overnight, that you know we're gonna work really hard with you and on your behalf. Um, but there's kind of a reality check in it. If the answer is no, that the artist has never had management before, that's actually a big turn off to her. I'm not saying that's to freak you out. I just want to dispel um, you know some of the some of the stereotypes out there because um, you know, I work with athletes also. <laughs> And people ask me what the difference is between um, working with athletes and musicians. And I'm, what I work in is really specific. I work with Olympic swimmers. But, you know, a really, a, a really good swimmer just grew up being good at swimming, right? They weren't like, who's going to be my agent? Who's going to be my manager, right? So, um, again, sometimes we have these, these generalizations in our mind that um, us as managers can, can't uh, ever, ever or always uh, look up to or live up to. So... Um, You know, also as far as managers go, um, you don't need a degree to to be a manager. You don't need any sort of license to be a manager. So also keep an open mind, you know? Like I started working with the Dresden Dolls when I was in college as a music business student and that ended up being really mutually beneficial. You know, they had this young, passionate person who was working really hard on their behalf um, and then I was learning a ton as I go too. Because again, with that stereotype we might picture someone on like the 50th floor or something um, when in reality, like they're really busy with their family or their divorce or their artists or whatever's going on in their life. Um, so don't discount, you know, someone around you who's uh, on a professional path in the music industry. That's really important. Um, but that also wants to work with and, and grow with you. Like I said, I'm a, you know, I started this as a 17 year old kid from a village here in Wisconsin. So we all have to start uh, somewhere. But also be mindful um, not to work with what I would call sycophants. Um, And so what I'm talking about there is someone that's completely obsessed with you, but isn't on a professional music business track. So when I introduced myself to Amanda Palmer, the Dresden Dolls uh, singer, when I was in college... I said I'm studying music industry. I intern at you know the, the local radio station. I write for a local music magazine. Let me know if you ever need help with anything. And she and she said, "Can you come over tomorrow?" But um, she told me later that she'd had offers from fans to help before, and I was definitely a fan. But it was very clear I was on a professional track, and it's really hard for artists to discern um, you know who a sycophant is. I mean that. You know, you can you know who the ones are on professional tracks, right? Like that's kind of I think kind of obvious based on what I just described. But um, it's hard to discern that because you know, someone someone wants to work 24-7 on your career. Like that sounds amazing. Who doesn't want that? Um, but as those people continue to rise in their power, they might be yelling and screaming at people, um, burning bridges on your relationships. Um, I've seen a few sycophant relationships really go south. Um, I know one in particular that eventually when they were fired, um, they ended up suing, you know, the artist for six figures because the artist, the female artist, uh, and it was a female sycophant, um, changed in front of her on the tour bus. And in my head, I'm like, then don't be on the tour bus because it's basically uh, someone's bedroom. Um, So, yeah, so be mindful of that. Um, When do you need a manager? In my opinion, it's when you've done, you know, everything in the first 11 chapters and the first 11 episodes, and you can't handle it anymore. It's become too big. It's become too much, right? That's different from not wanting to do those things. I mean, you can, there's there's some really good info in the introduction of the book from artist Zoe Keating, where she's like, you know, the pieces that you're pushing off and really procrastinating on, that's areas where you might need help. You know, for her, that was accounting Um, and, you know, and legal stuff, business affairs, um, at the same time, like I said, don't overlook like a music business student who wants to be a manager and really wants to get rolling with you. Um, you know, I teach music business classes and I'll see students like, well, I want to be a manager, but I don't think I'm ready yet. I'm like, well, the student next to you is a musician and really needs help. So why don't you all just start working together and, and grow together. So definitely keep an open mind as far as that's concerned. Um, managers work on commission. It's generally 15% of the gross in the U S, um, gross of all your entertainment industry earnings. So that includes like, you know, if you're in a band or group or you're in a solo career, if you're an actor, if you're a writer, anything entertainment related that you do. Um, so that means they're not commissioning on your coffee shop job or Lyft driving or whatever, you know, your day job might be. Um, yeah, and then sometimes it can also be twenty percent of the net. Um, do we know the difference between gross and net? Gross is everything. So if you make a thousand dollars, you know, on a show, the manager would commission a uh, hundred and fifty dollars if it was fifteen percent of the gross. Twenty um, percent of the net is going to have expenses taken out. Twenty um, percent of the net and fifteen percent of the gross generally shake out to be the same thing. Um, and twenty percent of the net is a little bit more of an industry standard in the UK and internationally. As well. Um, uh, Managers generally have terms as in how long you work with them. Uh, The traditional way is they would sign you up for a few years, you know, a year, three years, five years, whatever. Um, I didn't really like that when I was managing because if someone didn't want to work with me I didn't want them like counting down the days until um, they were done working with me. Um, But this is also relevant as far as, um, you know, post term goes. And what that means is generally the manager is entitled to a commission on what they worked on um, if, God forbid, there's a split between you two. Um, the old school way is to do it in perpetuity, which we learned, you know, means forever. Um, I didn't. I wasn't comfortable with that when I was starting out as a manager. Um, at the same time, there's definitely artists that I've set up, you know, uh, that didn't even know what a sync was. And I got them in a sync world and they've been really successful or did really lucrative lucrative publishing deals for them that they'll benefit from for the rest of their life. So on one hand, I actually do kind of understand it a little bit. But, you know, generally speaking, I'm, I'm not really the biggest fan of perpetuity. Um, so what I, what I did for post-term, um, you know, with the artists I worked with and um, with my attorney, my attorney called this um, a mirrored clause. And all the artists we ever worked with um, really liked this. I would get post-term for as long as I worked with the artist. So if I worked with the artist for a year, I would get a year of post-term. If it was three years, I would get three years of post-term. If I worked with them for five years, I would get five years of post-term. And that is generally a diminishing commission. And again, only on the things that you worked on. So a specific publishing deal, a specific release, maybe it's, I'm just making this up, it's all negotiable, but you know, 15% You know, for the first, uh, f- sorry, Um, 15% for a few years, then maybe 10% for a few years, and then maybe 5% uh, for a few years. At the same time, um, you know, I, the last few artists I managed, I didn't do management contracts. I absolutely um, talked about the terms and put them in writing, very similar to how we talked about doing so for songwriting splits. Um so know that if you have a conversation with a manager and put it down in writing, you know, via email, that's actually as in in as enforceable as a management contract. So one reason why um I didn't do management contracts with the last few artists I managed is because I didn't really want them to be spending thousands of dollars out of pocket on a management contract, right? Um, When it's as enforceable um, as agreeing to terms via email. Now, if you do get offered an artist management contract, like I said, absolutely hire a music attorney to negotiate that for you on your behalf. Um, I mean, frankly, if it's a manager that just wants you to sign something and doesn't even recommend that you get a music attorney, then then you probably shouldn't go with them in the first place. That's already... Not a good sign. Um, Okay, so that's managers. We're going to do a deeper dive uh, with Aaron and a few about managers. Um, Next up is your live booking agent. We talked quite a bit about that um, in the sustainable touring and and, uh, efficient touring uh, and live episode. Um, But a live booking agent just books your live shows. There's all sorts of different kinds of agents as well, right? You could have an acting agent. You could have a literary agent. Um, But for these purposes, we're talking about, um, you know, live music agents. So um, agents receive a 10% commission on your shows only. Um, So not on merch, not on anything else. This also allows them um, to take on way more artists. Most managers are only going to have a handful of artists they work with because they're working on all aspects of your career. But booking agents just book shows. Um, traditionally you might have a booking agent in the US and then a separate booking agent in the UK that might handle the rest rest of the world Um, this can be split up a few different ways you know Um, there's some agents in in Australia and stuff like that but London kind of tends to be the international hub as far as uh, ROW is concerned uh, the rest of the world Cool. So when you're working working with a booking agent, um, you know, when I was a manager, I was really prided myself on uh, being really realistic with the agents I worked with. That's probably why I have a good reason or a good relationship with booking agents. Um, You know, I wasn't yelling and screaming and demanding that they're on the main stage of Coachella when they, you know, weren't at that level of their career yet. Um, Instead, I would, you know, set up a call with the agent and say, okay, you know, this artist is really beloved you and I are both really connected. What are two or three festivals we can realistically, you know, go after and and build from there, right? So um, just wanna be realistic, remember that all these industry people are are humans too. Um, There's all sorts of different agencies, um, especially after the great agency shakeup of the pandemic. Um, There's three major agencies, CAA, Creative Arts Agency, UTA, United Talent Agency, and WME, William Morris Endeavor. Um, Those are what are called 360 agencies, so they also represent actors, athletes, literary, all sorts of stuff. Um, When you're working with them, they're going to do a big dog and pony show about all those other things. Um, In my experience, those other things only happen if you have those things going on, right? I'm not saying that isn't nice, um, but just keep that in mind. And I'm gonna talk about this a little bit right before I bring Aaron on. But sometimes I hear from artists like, oh, what do you think of WME or what do you think of CAA or whatever? And it's not about these massive companies, it's what I think of the individual booking agent and the job they will do on your behalf. There's great agents there, um, there's great agents at Aaron's company, there's great independent agencies, right? So it just depends on who the right person is for you. And when you're working with, um, you know, a major agency, know that you can also carve out um, other elements. Like I worked with W. Kamau Bell for a long time. Um, William Morris handles his, his comedy touring and his TV, um, but we carved out an independent speaking agent um, who did really well for him um, at a separate agency. I think his speaking is actually back with W and me at this point, but you get the idea. If, if you know that you can carve out um, some things beyond music, Um, You don't necessarily just have to have, you know, a major agency represent you for everything. Um, You know, generally booking agencies don't do contracts with artists. It's just a standard 10% on on your live bookings. Um, And know that they are also your exclusive agent in that territory. Um, so don't go around them and try to book separate things and, and try to save on commissions. Um, this is your team, you know, so, so work with your team. And I would say that across the board. It can be frustrating when, when artists try to like carve out commissions on management. But again, remember, um, as a manager, we're, we're, we are working on all aspects of your career. Um, and know that just like you, we do a lot of unpaid work as well, right? Like setting up, or I should say unpaid, but also like indirect Work like setting up interviews, maybe even supporting with travel and and things like that. Okay, um, next up is business manager. That is basically the entertainment and music industry term for a bookkeeper and a and or accountant that is specific to um, music and entertainment. Um, you know, business managers, in my experience, um, are really helpful when you need insurance, right? Like, I would recommend everyone here get some sort of gear insurance uh, when you can afford it, especially if you're touring, because we all see those terrible posts online. You know, when an artist has their gear stolen on the road, it's terrible. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about setting up a business entity um, you know, if you're just getting going, I don't think you need to set up a business entity. But when you're starting to fill out more and more W9s, you know, Allison M from Wisconsin Music Ventures pointed out it's it's a great way to um, protect your home address if you're doing that. Although a lot of artists set up PO boxes and you know um, professional addresses anyway. Um, but as you grow, um, and like I said, you're filling up more W9s. Um, you know, a business entity can protect you if, God forbid, you know, someone gets injured at one of your shows, right? They're not going to sue you personally. And as your career grows, you know, there's artists that have business entities for their recording, for their publishing, for their touring, right? Um, Because then each one is protected if, you know, God forbid someone um, goes after any of those. Um, And when do you need a business manager? I generally think you need a business manager when you start asking, when do I need a business manager, right? Like you're starting to pay out players and producers and royalties and budgeting for tours and things like that. Um, Business managers um, are generally paid hourly or they can also work on a 5% commission, um So that's kind of like the core team um, and then of course you know artists often have we've covered most of this but artists often have you know a distributor or they could be on an indie or major label you know to handle all their distribution. Um, they could also have a publicist a radio team or some sort of social media promo team some of that could come in-house if they're on a label Um, you don't have to be on a label to work with those types of companies as well so you know all of this is mix and match there's there's no one right way that's for sure Um, and then publishing and sync you know we talked about that and how to best work um, with with your your publishing publishing and sync team team. and And then then, of course uh, uh Merch companies. companies. We did a big merch episode um, with Chris Moon at Ambient Inks um, for when you're ready to work with a merch company. So, just one last thing before I bring Aaron out. Um, You know, I hear from artists all the time, like, how do I build a team or I need to build a team? And, like, you know, people can get so focused on that. Um, And if hiring, you know, X, Y, and Z person equaled success, then everyone would just go hire X, Y, and Z person and go be successful. So it obviously doesn't work that way, right? Um, It really, you know, fundamentally goes back to chapter one and episode one, get your art together, right? Is your art great? Um, And then, you know, if you're in the fortunate position where you have multiple team members in the same category interested, I see a lot of artists uh, overthink in in this stage, which I... Totally understand. Um, but just know that, you know, because I, I hear from artists like, should I go with this publicist or that publicist, right? Should I, should I go with this agent or that agent? I'm like, they all know the same people, you know, especially within each category that like, they they know, they know each other, right? Um, so you really want to find someone that believes in you, believes in your music, although they all will when you have traction. So you need to be mindful of that. So ask the artists they work with, right? Um, ask what working with them is like. Um, Also ask the industry people who are interested in in you, like, you know, for management, um, would I be working with you directly? Would I be working with a day-to-day manager? Like, there's no right or wrong answer. I hustled as a day-to-day manager, that's for sure. Um, But yeah, you know, just ask those questions. And I know this is easier said than done, but um, ultimately listen to your intuition, you know? Like, if this feels like a right fit and you can, you know, hear and feel that in your gut, um, you know, move forward, um, with great advice around you, of course. And if it seems, you know, if your gut's screaming no, um, I would definitely listen to your gut on that. But ultimately, you want someone that you can have a solid day-to-day workflow with. And um, just one last thing before I bring Aaron on, just again, we're humans, right? So I, the last few artists I took on for management, I was able to say, um, I don't work nights. I don't work weekends. Obviously, um, if there's an emergency that comes up, or there's a show or something that's totally, you know, legit or different, but um, you know, it made me a better manager to get rest and take care of my mental health and be a human. So just remember that there's a human on the other end of the text, phone, and, and inbox and all that, and um, you know, think about it as a team because that's what this episode's all about. Okay, so we're gonna bring Aaron on. I'm gonna give a quick uh, bio and background on Aaron. Erin Knight is president of Build Your Own Dreams, a lifestyle brand and creative agency. Uh, She's an artist manager, co owner of Invite Only Booking Agency, and a tour manager with deep experience working with events and brands. Erin is also a consultant and the newest member of the Music Entrepreneur Club. She's passionate about bridging the gap between artists and gatekeepers by teaching foundational business practices and simple industry hacks. She's an, she's an Atlanta native who's equally passionate, she, who's equally passionate about ownership and education. Erin is a self-proclaimed artist coach. She's devoted her career to teaching artists how to maximize their impact by own it, owning their intellectual property and monetizing their dreams. Let's welcome Erin Knight. Yay, Erin, how doing? are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you
0: for having me. How are you? I'm okay. Are you in Atlanta?
1: I am. The greatest city in the world.
0: <laughs> nice. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. We are so excited to chat with and, and learn from you. For sure. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So you're, you started your career and still work in show creation. Tell us about, you know, your roots and getting started um, in this industry.
1: Um, yeah, so I started out rock, working in rock music. Mm-hmm. I, um, I went to a friend's show, thought they were the greatest band in the world, and just kind of followed them around the city for a couple of months and started helping them make things happen. And uh, within, I guess, six or seven months of me following them around, I had them booked for Warp Tour. Nice. And they finally made me their manager, And that's how my career started, just touring uh, on tours like Warp Tour. It was very, very rough. That's like a really rough first tour to start on, Um, especially when you're not making any money. But yeah, that's how my career started. And now I'm more of an experienced designer. So less in the vein of shows and more in the vein of experiential events. So engaging the five senses to build community through uh, organized parties.
0: I love that. Um, Were you able to build a relationship with Kevin Lyman in your years on Warped at all?
1: Yes. Kevin is the reason that I believe that you can be uh, a great business person and a great human. And because of him, because he was one of the first big people that I ever got to engage with and create and develop a relationship with, it made it so that I was confident That it was possible. And then, you know, I've seen a lot of terrible examples of the opposite since then, but he was the first ever powerful person to pay attention to me. And it was very early in my career. So um, he has definitely shaped my temperament because I always believed that you could be good at business and a good human Um, but I never saw, I didn't see it a lot, but especially in the music industry, that was something I'd always heard that people were terrible. And then I met Kevin and he was incredible. And I met his daughters and his wife and, um, we developed a relationship and he mentored me and cared about me in those first two years that I went out on the tour. So yeah, shout out to Kevin Lyman. He is forever a part of my story.
0: I love that. Kevin Lyman is the Warp Tour founder. Um, he was a guest on season one um, and as a dear friend and, and mentor of mine as well. So um, I, I, I love to hear it. And, and I feel like this is kind of what you're saying, but there's a lot of names out there and it's kind of like whatever, but Kevin is the real deal and really will take the time for everyone. And it's just so giving, you know, with his knowledge. So um, I love that. That's amazing. Um, so you said Warped is a difficult tour, though. Tell us why for those that might not know. I mean, I can picture, I don't know, 20 people in a van or whatever, but...
1: Warped is rough because (laughs) you'll have, uh, so one with most tours, you're driving during the day, playing at night. Warped tour, the show starts at noon. And we were a newer band. So we would always play sometime between noon and like 3 p.m. in some of our bigger markets. Like Atlanta, they put us on stage at 3 p.m. and it was so nice. But uh, yeah, so you play all day and then you sell all day yeah so even when the band isn't playing you're selling because you're trying to make money selling merch that's like the big thing i think kevin was paying us like 225 dollars per show which was brilliant to us we were like oh my god he's paying us essentially equivalent to what we would make at local shows but for every show so when you add that as 40 42 dates you're like, it seems like a lot of money, but gas is very expensive, even back then. So the only way that you can survive on tour is by selling. So I was the tour manager, but also the driver, but also the merch slinger, also the mom. Also, I was doing laundry. um, Mm -hmm. And then also trying to like network because you're on the road Mm -hmm. with all of these major bands and major people. Some people hop on and off for a couple of weeks. We were booked for the whole tour, which was dope. But yeah, you, you sell all day. The whole camp breaks down around 9 p.m. And then you have to be in the next city by noon. Actually, you have to be in the next city by 10 o'clock to get your parking spot so that they can park you behind, you know, the fences and then build the fences. And then you unload. And then you have to be to the truck before 11 when they unload or you won't get your stuff. And as a new little band, your stuff goes on absolutely last. So you have to get there first. It's it's a It's a it's a process so essentially you may drive eight hours and get to a city 30 minutes before you have to unload so that was the first time that I ever experienced um hallucinating due to sleep deprivation um it's a brutal tour especially when you don't have the finances to help other people you know uh i didn't have much of a backbone back back then so i was just trying to please the guys and i and when they were tired i'd be like okay well i'll just drive you know and it's like yo, y'all could and then sometimes even for my personal safety the guys didn't drive very safe at night because they just wanted to get there and there's a lot of stories of people dying on tour you know from like falling asleep so even sometimes i would just drive just so i could like feel personally safe so it's a rough tour it's very hot it happens during the summertime you're playing on asphalt. So it's just like, it's way hotter. Cause you're playing, you know, it's an outdoor, it's like a, it's like a traveling festival. Mm-hmm. So um, shout out to Warp Tour. It's, it's defunct now, but I really cut my teeth during that tour and uh, it made me the problem solver that I am today. So it's, it's yeah. still, I, I, I love it. Uh, even my oldest friend comes from Warp Tour. I met her in 2012 on the back of a bus and we're still friends, but uh, yeah, it was rough.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, you do learn problem solving skills and um, Kevin's only not doing it because he doesn't want to live that lifestyle anymore. So. Literally. Yeah, I hear you. Um, So you mentioned that you you, you were like, oh, I started tour managing and then I became the band's manager. How did that transition come about?
1: Well, I started out as trying to manage them. Okay. And so I was Yeah, I went to their shows, I started reading a lot, and the lead singer would just text me consistently questions, and I would just send him back answers. And after a couple of weeks of it, he was like, how do you know so much about the music industry? And I was like, I don't, I'm just Googling it. And so then he was like, oh, we should get together and Google stuff. So uh, I've always been a researcher, I've always been a learner, but I started my first business when I was eight. So I knew about business and I have really good sense um, and I'm from the south side of Atlanta. We're the city full of hustlers. And so, um, yeah, so I, I I just would meet with him. We would go to Barnes & Noble. We would get music business books. We would get business books. We would uh, read and Google. Google was not what it is now back then. But we would just study. And then he went to a music business program uh, on the north side of Atlanta. And they talked about a conference. And I was like, we need to go to this conference. And the guys in the band Didn't want to, but me and the lead singer put our money together and registered the band for the conference, and then we registered to perform at the conference. And I heard Kevin was gonna be there. I researched him for two months leading up to it. I read every article, looked at every interview, um, talked to anybody who had ever even been remotely close to him so that I kind of got a sense for him, pulled up to his panel early, sat in the front, walked up to him immediately after, talked to him, And then that night he was at the show and he was like, yeah, let me know when your band is going. And I went and pulled him out of a room and was like, my band is playing right now. They only got three songs. He pulled up and after two songs, told them he was going to put them on tour. And I couldn't hear him because he was just standing at the front of the stage. You know, after they got off stage with the last song, they were like, yo, he said he's going to put us on the whole tour and he's going to pay us. So that was a thrilling moment for me. And so that's when they made me their manager, because they saw that the months leading up to that are the six months of me researching and then forcing them to go to that and then uh being present and really forthcoming with Kevin like I want you to be here I want you to pay attention to us led to a really rewarding experience and so that was my first experience as a manager I was definitely their manager they just didn't want to give me that name because they said I didn't have any experience uh. but I don't I know a lot of experienced managers even now who can't get their artists on tour so um, that was enough for them to be like, OK, you can be our manager. They were reluctant, but they needed the help. They knew they didn't want to do all the work it was going to take to go on tour either, especially when it came to the paperwork and all the stuff that we had to turn into the tour. So, yeah, I forced my way in and that's how I got into be their manager.
0: That's right. Okay, so do you hear that story and what I was talking about before, where it's like, oh, there's the stereotype in your brain of like, oh, I want the experience manager. It's like, or do you want Aaron researching the Warp Tour founder, making sure you know they come see your band, like getting them on Warp. I mean, that's management. So that's that's what it's about. Let's let's get these stereotypes out of our brain. Um, do you still tour manage? No. Okay, that's what I thought. Not.
1: Even even on nicer tours, it's just, yeah. respectfully, my artist can't afford me. Yeah. I um, work with an author sometimes, mm-hmm. and I assistant managed his tour, his book tour, mm-hmm. last year, but it was very plush, and we would only do like two, the longest stretch we did was three days in a row, yeah. but it's like, his books tour involved music, but it was like we were staying in really nice hotels, and Renting Teslas and having five-star deals. You know what I'm saying? It was a different experience, but it was only 11 dates. But no, I I don't enjoy tour managing at all. It's not for me.
0: Yeah. Um, But what did you learn um, with your time on the road? I mean, you mentioned problem solving, which I totally get.
1: Yeah. um, I learned how resourceful I was. Mm -hmm. So I I loved it when I did I I loved it, especially in my 20s, but I'm in my 30s now yeah. and I can make more money doing a one hour consultation right now Mm -hmm. than I can like even doing a full day's worth of work. Yeah. And it's just, you know what I'm saying? It's just not for me. No disrespect to anybody doing it. I think it's great. And I think it's a great place for people to cut their teeth, especially when you think that you're cut out for the music industry. That's a really great testing ground. But, um, yeah, I learned how to problem solve because at any moment, you know, like so Warped Tour, three days into the tour, it's 41 dates. We're in Vegas. Our van breaks down in Vegas mm. in Death Valley. And um, we it's a really old van. So we found out that the park we can only get from the East Coast. And so uh, we're parked at an Airbnb that we're staying there on our off day in the day of the show. So I have 48 hours to figure out how we're gonna get to the next city. And it would take seven days for them to get the part and fix it. Even mm-hmm. if we like, they wouldn't overnight the parts. So it was, it was a whole thing. And then in addition to that, it was gonna cost us, and I think it was gonna be like $2,000 for the parts, another $1,000 for the labor. So it was a really big mess. And Kevin literally was like, hey y'all, I will buy you all tickets, I'll fly you home. Y'all can figure this out and then you know y'all can join us on the east coast we have like 15 dates on the east coast Mm -hmm. and i was literally like kevin respectfully hell no like we're doing this tour i'll get back to you in 48 hours you know what i'm saying because at first you're just like trying to figure everything out but i was so i was 23 at the time i think and you know like rental companies won't rent to you until you're 24. I didn't learn that until then.
0: I think so I, thought I, it was 20, sorry, to I thought it was twenty. Started I thought it was twenty five. Even. Okay,
1: so maybe I was twenty four. I was a year younger than the, what they would let you do. And my band, I, I was the oldest one. No, so I was twenty three. We had a twenty four year old who was on mm-hmm. tour with us. So it, it probably is twenty five. Yeah. So we couldn't rent anything. It, it was chaotic. We couldn't rent anything. We couldn't get the parts to us. Like, cause we were like, even if we gotta like put it on credit cards or something. And even Kevin was like, I will lo- I will front load you the rest of your guarantees to cover the cut. Co-. Like, like Kevin did not have to care about us but we were trying to solve the problem. And after a day of not being able to solve it we go talk to him to see if there's an option doesn't work out, right? So we're just hustling. We're hanging up signs in the, like, uh, hanging up signs where everybody's eating, like, hey, if somebody wants to give our band a ride for the next few dates, we can split up between multiple vehicles. Because we had kind of figured it out. Kevin was like, I'll put all of your merch on the trucks. You know, like, we were figuring it out. But it was really, really hard. And then finally, like, down to the last minute, one of the sponsors, Um, green vans. I still remember their name. They had like eco-friendly diesel vans Um, and they were just driving around showing off their vans. Like they would put their van on a truck and then the truck would take it to the next city because they weren't trying to put miles on the van. They were just advertising to artists. So they're like, hey guys, we'll let you guys rent one of our vans for three nights, you know, you still have to pay us for it, but we'll take it off. We, we'll, we'll rent it to you because y'all are on the tour. And we know like our insurance is that you're trying to get to each of the next dates. You're not going to mess up our van, whatever. Yeah. So that was the first thing. And then we found out a photographer was trying to get on the road. He had a relationship with a local dealership. So he was like, I'll rent the van in my name for y'all and drive y'all around if you're willing. And then another band from Atlanta put me on their bandwagon, whatever. All of that happened in 48 hours. So I hustled through that. That, and there were so many problems that just consistently happened on the road. But mm-hmm. by the time I jumped over that hurst, first hurdle, I was like, I can do anything. And yeah. so, um, yeah, that, that was a Warp Tour. But then going into all my other tours, it's like, you never know what's going to happen. Somebody may get a nosebleed. Somebody may break a finger. Um, you know, you may get, somebody may get arrested. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, it's just, there's so many things and you're the end all be all. Like as a tour manager, especially when you're touring with smaller acts, there's not a lot going on. They're expecting you to have the answers. And so when everybody comes to me looking for a solution, I would just be like, I got you. And then I would go in the corner and like hyperventilate for a second. I would figure out the solution and come back with an answer. And so now I know that I'm really capable of anything because I'm a problem solver, which is also why I don't go on the road because people can't afford my skills. It's like hire an intern or something like that. I'm I'm not going on the road to problem solve these problems. I want to sleep at night. I don't want to be yelling over music, (laughs) you know.
0: Yeah, I used to tour manage as well, and also around that age. That's why, I like the age twenty five thing for the uh, van rental, totally stood out. And um, yeah, that's amazing. And um, you know, I did it also teach you empathy, you know, with artists and and touring it with the position you're in now.
1: I think it taught me empathy more towards the business types. Yeah. Uh, and especially like women in the industry. Mm-hmm. I'm an empath in, in general, so I just love people and I really care about nurturing and caring for people, which is why I think I'm such a great tour manager.
0: Yeah.
1: Um which is also to my personal detriment because right. I overcare and I overdeliver, yeah. so I'm killing myself on the road and people just think it's standard. You know what I'm saying? Like off days, I'm doing laundry and cooking so everybody can have a home cooked meal instead of sleeping. Like stuff like that, you know? Um but yeah, I think my empathy definitely grew for uh, the business side and people who have to do what I do. I love the behind the scenes, um, but seeing what it took to make that happen, I was like, damn, this is really, really, really where stuff gets done. Like artists get to stand up and be like, oh, life is so hard. You know, respect to y'all artists, but you're not touching what a business type is doing. You know what I'm saying? Like you can take months off and, mope and make music and this is no shot at artists but the business has to stay on track you know and so um even just watching how the tour operations work you know like they have a whole office that travels with them on warp tour so even me taking that and understanding that the business still has to stay on track even though all the fun stuff is happening around Mm -hmm. like i have to be really intentional intentional about keeping the business on track so that when we get off the road everything is still flowing smoothly
0: That's right. And, um, you know, I think you really, I mean, describe this so well, but you learn the problem solving skills on the road because everything is tangible, right? Like the van broke down in Death Valley and like good for you for like literally making it happen, you know, but um, that's something I'm constantly trying to teach to interns, you know, and people starting out. It's just like the road is such a great place to learn that because it's like, if you don't do something, merch doesn't get somewhere. Gear doesn't get somewhere. The show literally does not happen. So um, thank you for um, talking to us so much about that. Um, You're, of course, a deeply respected manager. Um, Tell us about, you know, who are some of the artists that you work with? I tell
1: people that most people don't know anybody that I work with. That's the funny thing. It's that um, I'm making indie dreamers really dream, you know, because... Mm -hmm. I can take, let me not say a nobody, because I think all of my artists are somebody. I'm fans of all of them. But I'm taking smaller people with hyper-niche audiences and yeah. helping them scale to be full-time. So um, I personally manage an artist called uh, named Wande. Uh, she's a Nigerian, moved here when she was like three or four to Texas, and then now lives here in Atlanta. Um, and then my team with Build Your Own Dreams, we manage... Uh, Well, signed to our label is an artist named Caleb Mitchell, who I used to manage. And then we also manage Portia Love, who's another female hip-hop artist. And then we manage Xavier Omar, who is an R&B artist. So uh, we dropped off about half of our roster in November just because why work with headaches? (laughs) You know? Um, So that's just who we have now. We have three people in-house and then a fourth uh, that I'm the lead manager of, but yeah, those are the artists that I work with right
0: now. Well, everyone is niche. You know what I mean? Like even big artists, you know, it's, it's a cult, it's a following. Um, and there's tons of people that haven't heard of them as well. I mean, there's like an infinite amount of artists now. So that's exactly what this podcast and book is about is making great art and taking care of your fans a very close second and, and building that up and collecting their data and, and communicating, um, with them, about that, um, you know, you, you mentioned headaches without naming names, what, what's an example of a headache? Because, you know, people want managers, right? So um, yeah, how can they best work with you, if that makes sense? I
1: think artists need to recognize that, and I say this with the utmost respect, but there are um, millions upon millions of people making music every yeah. single day there may be a thousand decent managers and you may only be compatible with a handful. So great management is very, very rare. And I think that when you don't walk into the situation reverencing um, the synergy and uh, the privilege it is for somebody to be invested in your dream, um, then you can get off And we have a lot of people who tend to get off. I think the nature of the business is narcissism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a word that I don't use casually, but Mm -hmm. people are used to having a big group of people celebrate what they're bringing to the world. So then they begin to think that what they're bringing to the world is more important than what other people are bringing to the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you devalue the people around you, helping you create your vision, then you begin to get into very dangerous territory. And as somebody who can stand on my own without artists, um, I'm not very fast to assert that, but if you need to be reminded, I have no issue with that. And so um, sometimes I have to remind people that I don't have to be here. I want to be here. You want yeah. somebody who wants to be there. Um, but I won't stay if I don't want to be there. And it got to the point that a lot of the artists that we were working with, I recognized that we didn't want to be there because yeah. they didn't value us. And it became very apparent. Um, we started getting legal issues going down. You know, like they were trying to take our intellectual property and say it was theirs. Um, uh, just a lot of assumptions and, uh, I don't know, just dealing with entitlement. Uh, I, I'm a builder, and I know the sacrifice it takes to own things and to build things. But I think a lot of people take that for granted and they see it done. Um, seemingly with ease so then they believe it's theirs and that they're entitled to it and so I don't function well with that. I'm a very easygoing, very cooperative, very communal type person Um, but what I won't allow is for you to take what I have created and call it your own. So I'm a very much give credit where credit is due um, and love the people around you and when I don't feel that being reciprocated then I can't work with you.
0: 100%. Um, What do you look for in artists?
1: Um, The first thing for me is is a a bodily response, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I have to have an involuntary bodily response, meaning I need to get chills. If I don't get chills, then your music is probably cool, like respect. um, But I need chills, right? That's the first thing for me. At some point, you have to give me chills, Because I don't wanna just say, oh yeah, I really rock with my artists. I wanna really, for real, be the biggest fan of my artists. Um, If you look at my Spotify wrapped, every year, um, all of my, like, whatever artists I'm managing, they're my top. And, you know, I get the music early. I get to hear it before it's on Spotify. And somehow, still, it ends up on my wrapped. And I don't, it's not that I do it on purpose, it's that it's lifestyle music. I work with people whose music I would hear out in the world and want to listen to on a regular basis and then it turns into that. And I had one artist for the last like probably six years, however long Spotify rap has been going on, who was always in my top and um, he's the last one that we just started managing. So it just, it worked out that way. I, I really, really want to be a fan. And then after that, I look at um, your goals and, and I want to align with your goals. If, if fundamentally we don't connect on a value basis, then it won't work. There's people who make decent music but it's derogatory to women, Mm. you know? And I'm not gonna align with that. Or, um, you know, like if your lifestyle is something that I feel like is in conflict with something that I believe in, I'm very forthcoming about that. I think a lot of people are like, oh, leave business separate. But again, as an empathic human, I want to fully believe in you. The way that I manage is that I'm managing the person. If they decide to leave music and go into something else, I'm right there with them. Yeah. Like I tell all of my artists, like music is a loss leader. That's what we're using to to signify to people that you're a creator and a creative, but from there, like if you decide to become a comedian or you wanna become a Twitch streamer or you wanna become a producer or you wanna become a lipstick mogul, I'm fine with that because I'm behind you as a creator, not necessarily you as a musician or a rapper or a singer. And so for me, I need to be holistically uh, connected to you. So that's the next thing for me And then after that, it's like, what type of synergy do we have? Do we communicate well? Do you communicate well? Um, Do you push yourself? Very similar to you. I don't want to outwork you. I'm a worker naturally. And I used to funnel all of that into my artists. And then I was consistently outworking them. And then they were getting the bulk of everything. And I was frustrated consistently. So I started realizing that. I need to put that energy into pouring myself into a bunch of other projects so I can still show up and bring myself to my artists, but I'm not looking for them to match my energy in that way, but you're going to match my energy. So I I, I don't do traditional manager deals. I don't do the 20% because I know I'm bringing a lot more and I have a team. Um, I, I think the industry standard was set when labels were creating artists and, and creating opportunities for artists, and then managers were just managing the opportunities that were coming in. I function as an agency and a yeah. marketer and a manager, and I'm creating the opportunities and then teaching the artists how to follow the line of opportunity, so I take more money. But in that as well, I come in more as a business partner. Mm-hmm. You know, So if we're business partners but you get a bigger portion of the business, you should be working as such. And if you don't match that type of energy, then we won't align, you know? And so um, that's something for me. It's like, you got to understand what you're getting when you get into it with me. Like, I'm going to push you to no end, but we're going to see results that you've never seen with anybody. And a lot of people who leave their management and come over to us are like, I had no idea we could do this much. And I'm like, yeah, let's run. We got legs,
0: you know? Wow, I love it. I mean, what are I? What, we're gonna get into your businesses, but what? Maybe I'll wait to get into that actually, because that's what I think uh, you mean about you know doing so much, and um, I can totally relate because when I was managing, you know, when you're saying you know talking about your Spotify Wrapped, people would ask me what I'm listening to. I'm like my artists and like the Beatles and classical, <laughs> basically. Um, so I totally hear you. Did you? I know you came into artist management very organically, but was that, like, a goal? Did you set out to do it, or was it just a natural transition?
1: So um, I'm a really big Paramore fan. So for my 21st birthday, my best friend at the time bought me tickets to see Paramore. And uh, we were standing in line at the concert, and they started splitting the lineup between people who had floor, like the floor standing area, and the people who had seats, Um, And so I had the floor standing area and they gave us these bracelets and they put them on our arm. And they were just those little, you know, those little like plastic or, you know, like the little fiber, the cheap bracelets that you just kind of stick on people. But on the bracelets, they had little kids playing soccer. Right. And it was like. These didn't come from Party City. They probably ordered these. Right. Because they were kind of like custom. And I had this thought. Somebody had to think about this because if they would have just got a plain colored one, anybody could have called their friend to run down to party city or Walmart yeah. to get the bracelet. And then they could have, had, because once they checked you, they just put you in the line and you were good to go. And then once they opened the door, everybody just held up their arm. I'm a finesser because I'm from the South side of Atlanta. So if you give me some, if you give me an inch, I'm taking 38 miles. Right. So if they would have given me a plain orange one, any of my friends who didn't have tickets to the show, I'd have been like, yo, pull up on me. Right. So then I started thinking, like, there's somebody behind the scenes who's thinking about all these details. So as I'm standing in line, I just start turning and I'm like looking at everything. I'm looking. They have a host outside who's like getting people hyped they got the radio station down the way they had a food truck so that people waiting in line could eat so you know like so they don't end up leaving so they stay at the concert and i just like my gears start turning and at 21 i'm like i want to be the person behind making music shit happen and that was like the first time i was about to finish school I liked music, but I just, it wasn't something that I was, I just knew I was always going to be an entrepreneur. I I just, I started my first business when I was eight. I had multiple businesses before I was 21. So I just knew I was always going to be an entrepreneur. And that's what made me say, okay, like I want to get into the music industry. And then maybe six months after that is when my friends started their band. I was following them around everywhere. I thought they were the greatest thing ever. And then it was all uphill for me. What was your business when you were? Shout out to
0: Paramore. Yeah. What was your business when you were eight? Uh,
1: It was called Heavenly Treats. So my friend, um, she made my favorite chocolate chip cookies. And I was like, how do you do this? Because I make chocolate chip cookies and they don't taste like this. And she was like, oh, I put a little bit of vanilla pudding in the batter when I'm making them because she would make them from scratch. And it was a recipe she had gotten from her grandmother. And so, you know, we're like eight. I don't know if this is like still a thing that eight-year-olds do. But when I was younger, like right around seven or eight is when you really start to learn how to bake. Like easy bake ovens were out. But I was like, I want to bake in the real oven. I had an easy bake oven. But, you know, so my friend had these banging cookies. And I was like, let's sell these after church. My parents are pastors. So she was like, okay. So she baked like, I don't know, like two dozen cookies. And we bagged them up. We sold out before everybody got out of the church. So I was like, give me the money. Next week, I'm going to double it. So then I was like, mom, can you, take me to, um, can you take me to Sam's Club? And she took me to Sam's, you know, which is like Costco. I don't know if everybody has those around. Um, but I was like, instead of you baking cookies, bake it. Because she also knew how to make red velvet cake. So I was like, make red velvet cake. I'm going to go buy Famous Amos cookies because we can sell more of those. So I bought Famous Amos cookies. I bought chips. And then I think I borrowed like $10 from my mom to buy like Coke and Sprite. And then my friend baked a red velvet cake. We sliced it up, right? So then we were rolling. So we ran it for like eight weeks. We made $1,000. But my mom shut us down because we kept leaving church during service to go set up our table to get it ready. My mom was like, you're leaving church. You're not honoring God. I'm shutting your business down. So she shut me down and I was so hurt. She gave me $20, gave my friend's mom the other $500, and then she put my money in a savings account. So (laughs) yeah, that was my first business, Heavenly Treat.
0: I love it. That's incredible. And whether you're describing that or you're describing like the wristbands and where did they get those special wristbands, like, I mean this with all due respect, like, well, I was, I can say it more respectfully. It's like, you're a lifer in this, you know what I mean? And I, am sure you come across young people that want to get into this and then it's just like, oh, email is boring or what this work is boring. Right. And like, I, I can see, this is the part that it's not disrespectful, but it's like, I can see people that are a geek about the work. And that's actually what it's all about. And people that show up and, you know, realize like, oh, actually backstage is production and it's kind of boring or whatever. It's just like, it's okay to be a fan. Like just, I mean, you and I are fans too, but it's like, it's okay to be in the audience, like keep being a fan. I love that. And I also wanted to say before, when you're talking about, um, supporting the human first in the artists that you manage, I totally get that. Um, we, uh, my company manages an artist named Julia Nunes who wants to do like a journal and she does yoga retreats and other things. And it's just like, we're all about Julia and her creativity, you know? So I totally hear you on that. Yep. Um, so what is an artist manager? How would you define that? Um,
1: it's funny. I, I typically tell people that management is a lot like marriage. Yes. Um, so you were... The closest artist relationship that they'll ever have. Um, You're their confidant. You're the person who keeps them on track. uh, You're their advisor. You are their strategist. You know, there's a thread going around on Twitter right now saying our our manager's the CEO or the COO. And I really think that, again, you're business partners. Mm -hmm. You're the person that they're looking to to be their equal on the business side. So if they feel like they are the greatest musician, artist, creator in the world, then you are the best person equipped to handle the business that they're creating around their music.
0: I love that. That is such a perfect um, description. So what does your day to day look like and how do you balance, you know, day to day work with the lo- with long term st- strategic planning for artists?
1: So I think I'm in a little bit of a a different boat. I started managing, uh, it'll be 12 years in September, or no, dang, it'll be 13 years in September. So um, is that right? Yeah, I started in 2012. Sheesh, I've been in this a long time. Um, No, 2011, I started. 2011, I don't know
0: how to do that. I think 12 years, if you start in 2011. Yeah, yeah.
1: There we go. Okay, so 12 years in September, that's when I talked to Kevin. He put the band on tour for the next year, which was the 2012 work tour. But yeah, so I don't do any day to day management Mm -hmm. like whatsoever. Absolutely not. I used to. I used to be the end all be all, which was to me. Day to day managers are somewhat like assistants. You're everything. You're making sure that stuff gets uploaded. You're keeping your artists on track. Um, in this day and age, you're, you're helping them post regularly, come up with their captions, you're communicating with everybody. Um, my role now functions more as a lead strategist. Uh, I'm more of a, a business strategist. So what's the best next step for your business? How can we go there? How, we, how can we move there? And then because I have a team, I spend a lot of time training my team and they do the day to day stuff. Um, I don't have any really, really skilled day-to-day managers just yet. Mm -hmm. So I'm not in the process of day-to-day every day, but I'm helping my team solve those problems and teaching them how to find those things. Um, And then I'm in the curation phase of my life. So I'm just curating a lot. That's like the experience design. Um, So I would say a third of my time every week if that even, maybe a fourth of my time every week is spent dealing with my artists. Um, But the way that my companies function, we have a lot of other functionality. So I spend another fourth of my time doing educational things like this. So um, I used to have my own academy called the Excellence Academy. We just shut down um, about two weeks ago. So I'm taking a hiatus right now from that. I'm not completely shutting it down, but I think I want to take about a year off. Uh, I do a lot of podcasting, so I'm on the MEC, but Build Your Own Dreams also has their own podcast, and I just started my own solo pod, and then I'm launching a podcast with one of my artists because we just got a radio deal. So I spend a lot of time talking now and teaching, and then then I do a good amount of consulting with my business partner. A lot of companies will say, especially like predominantly white companies looking to engage with urban culture, i.e. black people. They'll call us and say, hey, how can we fit this thing into that? Who are the creators we should be working with? Can you bring us creators? So that starts typically with our artists and then we build it out within artists in our network. And then I would say like the last piece of what I do um, is the experience designing. And so um, that's throwing the events. We're community builders at heart, uh, me and my business partner. Brandon. And so we're just always trying to find ways to build community. A lot of our artists work with us because both of us could sell out shows in any city that we went to. So then they were like, Oh, well, how do I do this? Like, I want to do a show with you all. And so we're just like, okay, well, this is how we do it. Here's how we're building community. We're not throwing shows. Um, We're creating experiences that people want to engage with. So yeah, my day looks um, mostly like meetings Um, Mm -hmm. And then I talk to my business partner a lot. We do a lot of strategy. But um, the place that I'm in my life right now, I spend a lot of time just chilling on my front porch, watching the trees, thinking. I started realizing probably like two years ago I was spending so much time doing um, that it was a diminishing return. Um, I'm, I was past the hustle phase in my life, but I was still hustling. And not to say that I'm not a hustler now. Yeah. I don't make a ton of money. I spend a lot on my team on labor, but I started realizing that I was spending way too much time doing things instead of conceptualizing things that we could bring to life. And my superpower is the thinking side. You know, um, you can teach people to execute, but typically you can't teach people how to think for the future or how to shape culture or how to innovate. And so not that thinking is more important than doing, but if you don't have the thinking part, then a lot of times you're just doing whatever everybody else is doing.
0: Oh my gosh. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I, I actually feel like our stories are very parallel. <laughs> and like, I felt that way, like reading your bio with like tour management and everything, but I totally hear you. I used to have, like, when I was a younger manager, I would have calls every hour on the hour um, but now it's like, I try not to have any calls or meetings on Mondays. I really try not to have any calls or meetings really before like 1 p.m. Because I need that creative time. I want to do, yeah, you, like you want to get organized. Um, yeah, yeah you need, we're
1: very yeah. similar to that.
0: <laughs> yeah, you need to leave that time, that space and time to, to build and, and create and think and come up with all this stuff. You're so right. It's not just all about doing. Um, what's your podcast called?
1: Um, so there's the How to Build Your Own Dreams podcast. Great. Uh, and that's with my business partner, Brandon. And then there's the the Winter Circle podcast, which is about to be a radio show on Series XM. That's with my artist, Wanda, um, me and her day-to-day manager, and her are in a group chat that I named the Winter Circle. And we just have a really fun dynamic, and we got the opportunity to produce a show um, for Series XM. So we're launching that uh, I think in April we're, we're doing test episodes in March. And then I just started my own solo podcast. It's called a podcast for adults to fall asleep to. I'm releasing that in March and it's just me kind of talking through my day as a woman in the music industry. Yeah. And if it's boring to you, I hope you fall asleep. But if it helps you sort through your thoughts, that's also great. But I think a lot of people struggle with restlessness. And I did too. And help it, I help myself by talking to myself. And so that's my new favorite podcast. It, it
0: hasn't released yet, but look out
1: for a podcast for adults to fall asleep to.
0: Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited for that. That's awesome. What are We've kind of touched on this naturally, but what are some challenges of being an artist manager? Um,
1: I think you have to remove your preference from things a lot, and I'm not saying that you have to bypass what you know or what you care about. Um, but that's something that I'm consistently training my team, and it's like our preference isn't number one here. Um, so you have to be very service oriented, and I think that that can be hard sometimes when um, deciding how to be service oriented, but also not being a doormat. Uh, That's something that was really hard for me to learn because I kept getting walked over and I was like, how does this keep happening? And I realized that my posture to serve people made them think that I was worth less than what Mm -hmm. they were, uh, less than who they were, right? Like we weren't equals. So I think that's really hard kind of teaching people that I don't work for you, I work with you. Um, That's a really big challenge. And then especially as a woman, men will love your expertise and my experience, but then want to treat you like an assistant. And uh, so that that's a challenge. A lot of artists aren't great at communicating. Um, they want to tell you what they want, but they don't know how to get there. When you get them there, they're like, oh, okay, cool, thank you. When they don't when you don't get them there, they're like, well, what's going on? How did you not get me here? And it's like we're all just shrugging and trying to figure this out. So I think getting on the same page with people is a really, really big struggle. Um, and then uh, just, the music industry has, I think I was reading somewhere, you have less than a 1% success rate. And it's like lower than any other industry, you know. And so I think managing expectations, um, keeping artists from comparing themselves to other people and recognizing that their journey is different than than yours, um, acquiring the resources that you need and then like knowing how to spend your money. I think a lot of people throw money at problems and it doesn't result in what they want. So just like being educated about where to spend money, how to spend money, what time to spend money, reminding that your artists that they have to spend money. Like it takes money to make money. And this is a business. You can't just hope that people are going to immediately pay you for everything. Um, And then even uh, teaching them to value their education. Like as a manager, I'm a teacher, and uh, that's, like, my role. I, I defer to that because, naturally, I'm a teacher. Like, I, I like to teach people, but I noticed that when managers teach more, they tend to have more successful artists because the artist understands what's going on. So, um just learning consistently for me and, and, and developing myself, but then also teaching my artists why it's important for them to learn and teach themselves and then us bring it back collectively. I think there's so many challenges in the music industry, you know, navigating shady people, finding the right opportunities. You know, there's just, there's a million challenges. And I think depending on the region that you're in, um, depending on the genre that you're in, you know, like I started out in rock music and then I transitioned to hip hop music, and those two things are very, very, very different. And then I transitioned into gospel music, and then now I work a lot in R and music. So it's like each each iteration, um, you're learning new things, you're navigating differently. You see what um, each genre puts an emphasis on, and the heavy hitters in those genres. You know, so I think it's a forever learning game, um, and the challenge is to keep yourself interested in learning. I think I was blessed with an infinite curiosity. I just like to learn. You know, it's, it's not even for my survival. I just want to because our survival and our thriving is dependent on what we learn and what we acquire. I think I'm in a pretty good position because I just enjoy doing it naturally.
0: Oh my gosh, I love that. I mean, first- I used to say that as an artist manager as well, how you talked about, I don't work for you. I work with you. Like literally, I used to say that. And then what you just said, artist manager is teacher, is so beautiful and brilliant. And I'm just going to quote you on that forever. So um, just wanted to echo those, those two things. I, I think that's incredible. Um, so how can artists best support you as a manager so you and your team are doing the best possible work for their careers? What are some good examples and good stories?
1: Um, So the artist has to be super invested in their business. I refuse to work with anybody who says, I just want to be the artist and let you take care of the business. It doesn't work like that. Not only do you need to be invested in your business, but you also need to understand it. I'm not expecting you to know everything, but I'm expecting you to show up with an understanding of what's going on before you start telling me what you want, you know? And so I'm very um, adamant about education. Um, And then about studying. If you don't want to read a book, you need to be studying your peers. I don't agree with anybody who doesn't want to read a book. I give all of my artists books at least once a year. I'm like, hey, I'm not asking you to read books often, but you got to read a book. And then we're constantly sharing um, articles with our artists examples and videos, whatever. But it's it's so easy to study now with the internet. So um, I think that's super important with artists because when you don't study, you tend to see only what comes across your feed. So then you're saying, oh, that, that's the norm. I wanna do it like this person. And I'm like, well, this person did it this way, but this person did it this way, and this person did it this way, and this person did it this way. If you have a bigger sample to assess your information from, then you're a more informed um, creator and business owner, you know? And so I feel like that's something that's very, very important to me as artists studying. And then I think that um, something that makes really good artist-manager relationships is having a set meeting every week. So um, all of my artists, all of we, we meet weekly, you know, and it doesn't, some so I have one artist, Caleb, he's just kind of like, yep, yep, okay, got you, mm-hmm. yep. Our meetings may only last 20 minutes. I, one day, our meetings are two hours. Sometimes I'm like, one day, I'm giving you 45 minutes this week but it's because that alignment when you get in the groove of seeing me every single week even via zoom yep. and we're talking then we're, we're setting the course for success i think that if a manager is working and an artist is working and the artist is only texting the manager yep. and the manager's calling the artist when stuff needs to get done you start to get out of sync and it creates a really hard relational dynamic because then the artist only hits you when they need something and then the manager's trying to chase the artist. You know, so if you have a set time where everybody's coming together, especially as a team, want to create synergy because you understand what everybody wants and needs. My artists understand the way that I communicate. So when I shoot them a quick text without context, they're not getting offended or thinking anything of it because they hear me talk to them every single week, you know? Um, So I think that those things are really, really important to get aligned. Um, And then I think also having um, outside guidance. Uh, So for managers, you have somebody else that's pouring into you. If you don't have a mentor, I didn't get a mentor until like uh, two years ago. I was assigned one by uh, BEMA because I got into a program, but you know, nine years into the industry, and that was the first time that I had ever had a mentor. So if you don't have a mentor, that's the reason that I do the MEC podcast and how to build your own dreams podcast. I never, especially as a black woman, saw other black women leading. And I was like, I need to see somebody else in this industry who talks like me, who thinks who's in it like right now. You know, a lot of yeah. people used to have podcasts and they used to manage like Dave Grohl or something. And yeah. it's like cool, but like Yo, I'm in the internet age, you know? So, like, if you don't have a mentor around you, create mentors from people on the internet. The internet has helped so much. There's a lot of people, you know, like your podcast, my podcast, Mm -hmm. um, Ari Hurstead. Like, there's so many great resources out here in the world, you know? And then with the artists, I would say, again, going back to studying, Um, And then really develop your communication skills. That's something that I feel like artists are not great at. And we talked about that kind of at the top of this. And I say, I don't really have a big expectation from artists, but from my artists, I do. You shouldn't walk in the room and hide. You shouldn't walk in the room and point to me when somebody talks to you you should be able to hold a conversation and then i should see you holding a conversation and then i'm going to come up and close the deal you know what i'm saying but um, yeah communicating well uh your presence in a room is super valuable and so if you're just expecting me to go out and shine you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities because you could be out there shining so
0: yeah Oh, love it. Um, my company also does weekly calls with our artists. So, you know, that works really, really well. So if you're working with a team, you know, for the artists in the audience, like that's something you could suggest too, you know, if, if they're not suggesting it. And then you're so right on mentors. And I also feel that mentors don't always come in the form that we think they do. You know, like I meet a lot of young people that are like, I'm looking for a mentor or or my internship supervisor didn't mentor me in the way that I want. And it's like, well, did you ask them about that? But like, you know, my mentor's name is Mike Luba. And I don't think I realized he was my mentor until like years later because we were just doing it. You know what I mean? Like I met when he was in college, I was working with a band. Um, He started managing that band. I was tour manager, became day to day manager, and eventually it was like I was managing that band. And then whenever I need needed something, Luba was there. I mean, he's kind of like like in a good like not in a bad way, but like kind of like a frat boy. And I almost feel like would bristle at the word mentor. But Mike Luba is totally my mentor. You know what I mean? So it's not always like a, a formal thing, and um, I think that that people should keep that in mind. Um, So you've also launched a booking agency. I love that. Um, Tell us about Invite Only. I believe that's, I assume that's how it's pronounced and your role as an owner.
1: Yeah, that's how it's pronounced, Invite Only. Okay, I was making sure my mic was still on. Um, Yeah, so Invite Only started because I was tour managing all of my artists and then more artists started being like, yo, can you put me on tour? And um, I would tour, so I was throwing tours even for artists who weren't who I wasn't managing, and then small the labels started asking me to throw the tours. And that's really how I started making money, because there's not a lot of money in artist management. You know, I think most of my artists at the time were making like anywhere from like 30 to 50,000 dollars a year. So you know, yeah. if you're young, you can kind of skate by on that. But I was making 20 percent of that yeah. after taxes. I think I was taking home like 15 grand. So it's like, I still had a job. I was nannying. I was mm. doing a lot of side jobs, managing venues, whatever. But when I started throwing tours, I'm like, oh, I can get paid as the promoter on every day. And then I get paid as the tour manager. And then I'm also managing the artist, So I get paid as the manager. And so then it allowed me to waive off some of my fees yeah. with my artists so that they could keep a little bit more money because I was also eating Um, Yeah. So then the tours started getting bigger and bigger and I just needed help. And so my business partner, Brandon, who we had started throwing shows together, he's in Austin and I'm in Atlanta. But we had worked with one of the same companies that was hiring me to throw tours. And so he was working with me on some of the tours with them. But then when I was throwing my own, I just needed more support because I'm like, I'm I will be on the road. But I'd be planning another tour and then I'd get off the road for a couple weeks and then be back on the road with the next tour. And so he started helping me do all the back end ticketing, customer service, um, communicating with some of the venues, whatever. And so uh, that was in 20, was that 2018? I think end of 2018, beginning of 2019. And then he came into town for A3C Festival in Atlanta, which used to be the biggest hip hop festival in the U.S., and, um, we were hanging out one night after one of the shows, and we went to this like invite only dinner. It was so wild. We got invited to it, thinking it was a party, and then we pulled up, and it was the guy who throws these parties. it was his his house, and he was cooking for us, and it was just a table of four. It was so wild, beautiful. Really great night. So we were like, yo, we should call our our booking company Invite Only. Because so many people were asking us, like, yo, can you book me? Can you book me? Can you book me? And I think artists think that if you know a booking agent, you're automatically going to get booked. We were only booking artists who could sell tickets but just didn't have the attraction of a booking agency. Because we were working with artists who could sell out typically 150 to 300 cap rooms. For me, there's money in that. You know, for WME and CAA, they're like, okay, we'll wait till you get to the 500 cap rooms regularly. But I was seeing these artists around me who could sell out again 150 to 300 tickets in their major markets and they may have five or six major markets but then it's like if i combine them with another artist who has three or four major markets and that artist is their direct support and then we put another artist to open who has two or three major markets now we have a 10 to 12 city tour and we're guaranteed to sell out almost every night and that started happening we were selling out consistently Um, So, yeah, we formed the company in 2019 after having several successful tours between 2018 and 2019. And then, um, yeah, we became a booking agency. So we work with a lot of clean or Christian artists. So we do a lot of like state fairs and um, like city events where they want clean music. We get those bookings which bring artists a ton of money. And then we also chart tours. Um, I don't really believe in traditional touring right now, post pandemic, just how expensive it is. So we're kind of prototyping a different model of uh, short-term weekend experiences um, at a higher ticket rate. So we don't typically book tours anymore, but that's what we started out as doing tours. And then we also do a lot of incoming bookings for our artists. So I think we have like 13 artists on the roster right now. I'm pretty much just an owner. I don't really do anything. Our lead agent is one of the owners. There's an assistant agent. I used to do a lot of the agent work. um, And then I used to go out on the road. But I got burned out. And um, I was very artist-facing, even though we had an agent and we had people to advance the shows. Every time an artist needed to catch a flight or a flight got canceled or whatever, they would call me. They'd be like, Aaron, what am I supposed to do about this? Aaron, what am I supposed to do about that? Um, And then additionally with the booking agency, we also consult on tours and festivals and we own a festival. So that's what I spend most of my time on is booking out festivals and uh, consulting on how to create and build festivals. But I am not really involved in the day-to-day of that anymore. I just mostly am I'm one of the faces of it, so because people know my reputation, we get to bring artists in because they want to work with us. Um, but I'm not super involved in the day to day of that anymore, as of probably like six to seven months ago. But
0: well, what a brilliant concept! And you, you know, uh, with what you described, and you absolutely got it going. And not to jump around too much, but um, when when we were talking about how artists can best work with managers, I did want to echo communication. Um, that's something that artists need to uh, be better about and and something I talked about in a previous podcast episode, respond, you know, when someone sends you an email, respond. So just a couple of questions um, and then we'll open it up to Q&A and, and let you go. I'd love to learn more about your lifestyle brand and creative agency, uh, Build Your Own Dreams, which you're president of. It's a beautiful name.
1: Thank you. Yeah, so Build Your Own Dreams is the hub that pretty much everything that I'm doing falls under, um, minus Invite Only, but Invite Only and Build Your Own Dreams function as a feeder system. So it's like every artist that's signed or works with Build Your Own Dreams is also signed to Invite Only. And then if any of the artists on Invite Only need additional marketing services, they can utilize it through um, Build Your Own Dreams. But uh, Build Your Own Dreams functions as a hub. We're community builders and we express that through experiential events. Um, marketing, management, and label services, and then an education vertical. So those are the three ways that we function, and that's where you know the management is now so that I don't have to deal with the day-to-day. But um, in addition to those things, again, as a hub, we want to function as an ecosystem for our artists. So not that we're the end-all, be-all, but that you never have to leave home. If you need yeah. something, we can find it, we can get it, we can acquire it for you. Um, and so uh, my dream is for black people to be free. And a part of that freedom is financial freedom. But right after that, if we're looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah. you know, you need to be mentally healthy and um, yes. able to express yourself to the highest degree. And so part of that is mental health, right? I go to therapy. Um, my therapist just bumped me down to biweekly, but I was going every week for the last two and a half years. And um, that's something that has transformed the way that I do business and life because I've been healing. Right. Um, yeah. A lot of my artists look at me as their therapist and I don't want to be. No. Um, but a lot of artists create the best art because it's coming from pain. And I don't want to profit off of their pain without offering a solution yeah. to also heal it. And so we make we, we do really, really, really equitable deals with our artists because, again, we want them to thrive. And we're an ecosystem. Like, your, your music is your intellectual property. We can make money in other ways. So because we give such generous deals, I can't afford to also pay for their therapy. So, um, and I also feel like we need to, as a community, rally around each other. So the way that I'm offering it as a community-based project is we sell T-shirts, um, and a lot of other merchandise to send creators to therapy. So you may not even be able to afford uh, to send somebody to pay for a whole session. You know, like typically sessions are like $100 to $150. You may not be able to afford that, but you can spend 30 or $40 on a T-shirt We take the proceeds from those shirts and we send creatives to therapy. So right now we have three people in therapy. Our goal by the end of the year is to pay for 10 people to go to therapy. And so every year, once we hit the goal, we bump it up, you know. But um, all of our artists and staff get the option to go to therapy. And then we opened it up to other creatives outside of the Build Your Own Dreams family. So if you're a creative, you can apply on our website. Um, We open it up. Uh, in March and we're taking, you know, we have a certain amount in the fund. So depending on how much it costs, we'll either pay for um, all of your sessions for a period of time or we'll offset it by paying for a portion of your sessions. But yeah, that's the lifestyle brand. I feel like if you want to look good, you got to feel good as well. So I don't want you to just be flossed out in cool clothes. I want you to really be Internalizing the feelings of goodness, so um, that's what uh, the other part of our company does is is sends creatives to therapy.
0: Oh, just incredible! And where can people buy that merch to support um, that brilliant initiative?
1: Shop. Yeah, you can go to shopbyod.com, or you can go to the link in my bio or byod at byodgram. Um, Yeah, the company is Build Your Own Dreams. So uh, you could just look us up on Instagram and click on the link in the bio, but we're, we have a new season of clothes dropping in April, but there's cool stuff on the website right now. We have postcards. We've got chains the say build your own dreams, you know, so lots of cool stuff that you can, and if you don't like anything or you don't want to purchase anything, you can donate directly on our website and all the proceeds from the donations go directly to sending people to therapy. Ah,
0: oh, I love it. And last question for me uh, before any audience questions. How do you, I mean, you do so much. I'm so impressed. You've just created, you know, your own reality. You were really the perfect season finale guest for how to build a sustainable music career. Um, How do you find balance in your life and career?
1: So I heard this somewhat recently. I don't actually believe in balance. I believe in things not getting too unbalanced. Mm. You know, so it's like, Um, you're, if you're juggling a bunch of balls, if you drop one, and you don't stop the whole juggle to pick one up, everything will fall, you know, so it's like, um, I think that I try to work really hard not to get out of balance too consistently. That was my issue. I like, I was like, there's no such thing as balance in this industry. And I realized that I was just out of whack in so many places. But I think if you try not to get unbalanced, um, too often. I think taking care of yourself first is the biggest thing. I never understood that. Um, I grew up as a giver. My mom is a giver. she's an overgiver. And so um, I grew up putting myself last most of my 20s and into my 30s. I grew up putting myself last. And a couple years ago, I hired a business coach and he was like, you have to be the first partaker of any goodness that you bring into this world or you'll begin to resent the goodness that you're bringing into the world. And that's exactly what was happening. My artists were thriving, they were making money, they were living their dreams and I owned this company and I was tired all the time. I was broke, I was frustrated and I started resenting what I had built. So I think a big part is reminding myself of why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I want black people to be free, but I got to set myself free first, you know? And part of that freedom is resting more. So I rest. Um, I spend a lot of time sitting on my front porch and and looking at the trees. I go on walks, you know, I feed myself well. Um, And I tell people when I'm not doing well, I go to therapy regularly and out of that, uh, comes a healthy mindset and a healthy lifestyle. I go to the gym regularly. You know what I'm saying? And so from there, when I'm thriving, it allows me to in- inject into my ecosystem thriving ideas, thriving intentionality, um, thriving enthusiasm, you know? And so uh, it took me a long time to get here. I will say that I'm speaking from a privileged position because I have a team, so if I need to take a few days off, um, there's other people to keep it afloat. But when I had way less um, artists, way less team members to worry about, (laughs) way less taxes to pay, I was killing myself because I felt like that was the solution. Um, and I think that if I would have just told myself, like, it's okay to take a break, you can slow down a little bit, you'll probably be more productive if you rest more, um, I think that I would have done a lot better to not burn out as often as I used to, but I'm grateful for where I am now, it's definitely a journey, but I say that, like, I, don't, I think that balance is somewhat of a myth, um, mm-hmm. I think for me it's just making sure that nothing gets too out of balance too much, in the book Atomic Habits it talks about Everyone's bound to fail, um, but don't make the failure a habit, you know, so like if you're on a good track and then something drops off, don't hold yourself hostage like, oh, dang, I messed up. It's like, it's cool. That's natural. But get back on track. Don't just stay out of track, you know, and so that's how I see balance for myself. There are ebbs and flows in this business. There are times you'll go really, really hard, and there's times that you're really, really going to rest. Um, but you should make rest a rhythm, and then from everything else, you'll be, um, you'll be fine. You'll inform everything from your rest if you do well. And when I say rest, I'm not saying, like, sleep all day, be yeah. lazy, whatever. But I'm saying that you shouldn't look at rest as a privilege. You should look at it as a necessity. Yeah. And um, when you do that well, everything else will thrive.
0: Oh my gosh. I love all of that. It makes you better at what you do. And, um, you know, I mentioned to you, sleep is my number one health priority and I have a pretty non-negotiable morning routine so much so that, um, I'm, I'm probably going to write a book about it. Um, well, Aaron, that was amazing. Um, I want to open it up to the audience. Um, if there's any questions for Aaron Knight. Yeah. Oh,
2: hi Aaron. Um, name's Leonard. Um, question when you built your team how did you go about doing it did you use family and friends uh like-minded people or strangers all in general how did you go about building your team
1: i actually really love this question because i think a lot of times people are like i need a team i need a team i need a team and i needed a team for way longer than i had one right so i i The way that I built my team was by doing great work and creating catalytic moments in my career that attracted people to want to work with me. Because even right now, I can't afford my team. My team are all um, contract workers. The only two actual employees with my company are me and Brandon. Everybody else is a contract worker. And what we pay them doesn't equate to the work that they're doing right now, because we can't even fully afford them. But because we do such good work and because we're consistently creating wins and a culture um, that's hell-bent on serving our community well it's attracted a lot of people who are willing to work for our vision who may not have uh, may not get the proper compensation so for me the way that i got my team they're all strangers even brandon like i didn't know him i met him at south by southwest and we started working together and then it led to other things but Um, if I'm thinking, yeah, everybody on my team at some point was like a fan of me. They were a fan of what I was doing and what I was building. And then I reached out to them or they reached out to me like, hey, I want to intern with you or whatever. Well, actually, yeah, most of my team, like, they would pull up at my shows or they would DM me um, and they ended up working for me. I think when you need something, you have to attract it. I think sometimes you can ask for things, but people are not as willing or prone if they're not as attracted to you, you know, if they're attracted to you and they really want to be around you, making that ask becomes a lot easier. So um, as an artist or a a business person, I would say you need a proof of concept um, of the fact that you have a viable uh, business or business model, at least that people want to come work with, uh, before you you, you get a team. Cause it's, it's difficult. You're, you can't even pay for good help. I'll tell you, I've paid people more money than what my team makes now, and they weren't good, but my great team works for less money than I've paid other people because they're so good at what they do and they really believe in what I'm doing. So, um, yeah, it's, I would say it's somewhat of a catch 22. You, you're, you're going to need a team for way longer than like I needed a team for years but I just kept doing everything and I kept growing what I was doing and as my team became more and more necessary they they came to me
0: yeah I I can echo that as well like the more I've done and the more I've put myself up there people show up and that's really nice too because it's like they're into what Aaron is doing or they're into the ethos of of what we're doing anyone else any other questions yeah Eli
2: Hello Aaron, um I'm eli um I, I don't have a question, but I just wanted to thank you for being here um yeah like every everything you said, just like key um obviously, I don't know, I don't even need to cite anything because i will just have to cite the whole podcast, but um, I just want to thank you because I don't know how soon I'm gonna need a manager um but I feel like now I know exactly what to look for just from hearing you talk um your commitment to people and like like actually people you know like you you know that you're a business person but that your your purpose is more than just the business it's it's for the person you know um and I know you you talked about how you would always you know give more than you could um but I don't know I just uh, I want to thank you for the work you've done and just for hopping on this podcast. Um, Emily, as always, this episode was a banger. So anyways, that's all.
1: Thank you, Eli. That's so encouraging. And um, I'm always encouraged when my heart and intent comes out. Sometimes I'm worried that people don't know that I care about people. Like, that's like, that's my first and foremost thing. You know, if if I wasn't in the music industry, I would be in some other industry caring for people. Like how I paid my way through my first several tours and working in the industry was being a nanny. Like I'm just naturally a nurturer and I love people. So I'm grateful that that came through. Um, It's really encouraging to hear that from you and I hope you keep killing it.
0: He is killing it. We had another question? Sorry, this is more of a technical question following that beautiful uh, summary, but anyway my name is Paul
1: and I have a question, Um, let's say you're doing really well
0: online but you're not playing a lot of shows, is it still possible to get a good manager just based on your online activities?
1: So I would say, um, I tell everybody this, you're not winning till you're winning in your hometown, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're not getting shows, make your own shows, right? That's how I started. So the reason that the band, the reason I felt like the band should have made me their manager early was be earlier was because I was throwing shows for them. Um, But like shows don't have to be at traditional venues in your, like if you play guitar or whatever, go to your local coffee shop and be like, what's your slowest day? And if they say Tuesday, say, okay, I know you guys close at three, but could I have, could you do a late night thing for me and maybe open from five to seven and let me play here? And I'm going to guarantee you, you'll sell at least a hundred cups of coffee or something like that. Or maybe you go to a local brewery, you rent a sound system from Guitar Center, it's $125 to get a decent sound system. You tell another friend, Like, yo, I want you to open up the show for me, whatever. Um, And you don't even have to sell tickets. You could do it for free first, or you could sell tickets. And you're like, all right, everybody, we all need to sell 10 tickets. Maybe you put three homies on the show. Now you've sold 30 tickets on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or whatever. And now you have a venue. By doing that, you're creating, again, proof of concept. And now you can take that to a venue and say, hey, I've thrown three shows locally. The first show I had 30 people, but now I have 75 people who typically buy tickets to come see me on a Thursday night. Can you book me or can I open up for somebody else? Right? So one, what that does is that teaches you how to promote a show well. Two, um, it gives you the opportunity to get an in with a venue, but three, it, uh, attracts a better type manager, if you're looking for a manager to throw shows for you, you could just throw shows for yourself. There's no point in you waiting until you get a manager to do that. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and then it creates more community because you got to find homies who are willing to sell 10 tickets. They're going to sell tickets to 10 people that you probably don't know. And now you have, you're starting to develop a fan base. Um, as much as online is interesting, and needed to a degree, um, until you can count the fans, you know their names, I don't consider them fans, right? Um, So a critical mass is a thousand people willing to spend a hundred dollars on you. If they're just an Instagram follower or somebody who is uh, watching your reels, I don't consider them a fan, I consider them a spectator. If they are listening to your music on Spotify, They could be be in the beginning stages of being a fan, but I don't consider anybody a fan until they make a financial investment. So you want to start testing. Do you actually really have fans? If you're saying that online you have good traction, um, maybe it's not your hometown, but you can make it your hometown. For instance, my artist Caleb Mitchell had more fans in Atlanta than he did in New Jersey, where he's from. The good thing about that was that I was based in Atlanta, so we just started throwing shows here in Atlanta. So Atlanta really is his home base when it comes to his fan base, because his first show, we sold like 120 tickets. Part of that was me, but then part of that was him having a fan base. Um, And this is ages ago. This is like right when I was starting with him in the hip hop scene. So um, I would say... Shout out to online, but it's not real till it's real, right? Like, you want to touch people, smell people. You want them to smell you. You want them to see. You want them to invest in you. So I would say go ahead and throw your own show. Like, if you have a backyard, I don't know. Y'all are not in the South like me, but if you have a backyard or a homie with a backyard or in a sound system, throw a backyard show. We used to do garage parties all the time with the band I used to manage. And it was bring your own beer. we get two cases of beer. People would pull up with beer. And then we would just put the guitar case out at the end of the night. Like, yo, if you like what we're doing, please support. Toss a couple bucks in the guitar case, right? So even something like that, like start throwing your own shows. There's basic, virtually no barrier between you and throwing a show. It'll take you a little bit of money, but probably no more money than you would spend in the next couple of weeks on beer. So try to figure out a way for you to start developing a real live presence before you're looking for a manager to do that.
0: And, you know, with that online presence, like collect mobile phone numbers, collect email addresses, because Aaron talked about something really important. If you can get a thousand fans to spend a hundred dollars a year, that's a hundred thousand dollars right? But if it's just a social media following, that can kind of come and go. And then I loved what Aaron said, you know, um, about the New Jersey artists actually being bigger in Atlanta. Pay attention to your metrics, right? Don't just like book a bunch of shows and hope that people show up. Look at your Spotify metrics. Look at your social media metrics. Look at your email and text message list metrics and go to where your fans actually are. Anyone else? Any other questions for Aaron Knight? All right. Well, Aaron, I kept you way longer than I said I would because I loved talking to you so much. So thank you. It was such an honor. I'm so inspired by you. I can't wait for your new podcast and anything I can ever do for you. Just say the word.
1: Thank you so much. I'm grateful to be here. This was a great experience. Shout out to y'all. Uh, I got to get out your way soon. Uh, my my guy dj Payne one is out there with y'all he's a co-host on one of the podcasts i'm on so um, there's a lot of things brewing uh our in-house graphic designer is he's also an r and artist out there so i gotta make it out y'all's way some of my favorite producers are from um where you guys are was milwaukee right yep shout out to you emily thank you so much for having me um y'all have a really dope scene that's developing out there so all of you artists keep going y'all are y'all are gonna be the next like music hub really really soon so believe in your scene invest in your scene i'm grateful to be a part of this so thank you
0: oh thank you aaron let's give it up for aaron knight Love it. Well, have a great weekend, Erin, and we will be in touch. Um, So just a few things to wrap this season. Um, I do want to add, that's so cool what she just said about Milwaukee. Um, I talked to you guys a few times about responding and the importance of responding as artists and industry people. Um, I don't think there's too many industry people in the audience. It's mostly artists right now. But I do think the Milwaukee and Wisconsin music ecosystem needs to be better about um, working together. And I'm talking a little bit more on the organizational level. That's not really like for you guys, it's going to benefit you guys. But that's definitely something I'm, I've observed here over the past few weeks. I do want to see more organizations collaborating, working together. Um, I always mess up this metaphor, but whatever, like rising tides, all boats rise, you get, you get the idea. Um, you know, and I mentioned this that um, in a different episode, but um, I do feel that in New York and LA, people are really open to collaborating. Right? It's just like let's meet, let's connect. Everybody responds. Everybody wants to work together. So I think sometimes we can get um, you know a bad rep a little bit in New York and LA. But um, yeah, so write back to everyone if you're an artist. Um, you know, even if you're feeling insecure or not quite sure what's right, it's it's you know more important that you actually write back and um, for you know. Really, in any any market, um, the different music entities need to be working together, collaborating. Um, It's not a competition. You are all one music ecosystem. Um, So that is a wrap for season two of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I just can't thank you all enough. We are going to do two special audio episodes um, that will not be live. We're going to do an episode with Beat Bread, Um, to talk about artist cash advances that everyone is eligible for. So if you're listening to this on a normal podcast platform, that will be out next week Um, for people in real time. That's going to be out in a few months. And we might do a live production episode as well. But... Um, Really, I can't thank you guys all enough for your support. It's really been an incredible time um, doing this here at No Studios in Milwaukee. Um, I just want to thank my production manager and dear friend Mike Zimmerlich for all his help and support. Um, Mandy Cuesta, who's been assisting on this podcast. Nathan Kane who engineers this podcast. Matthew Wong, who composed the beautiful podcast music that people on podcast platforms are listening to. Um, Volume for all their support. Um, webcasting this, Arielle Hyatt um, for all her PR help um, Lisa Caesar, No Studios No Studios team, I really can't thank you enough, I hope you got something out of all of this and um, yeah, we might be back with a, a third season in just a few months so um, like, subscribe, I'm at emwizzle on social media and there's also links to um, subscribe to this podcast email list so you get directly contacted when we do more of these thank you guys again from the bottom of my heart